Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Two London landmarks vie for architecture's highest accolade, the Stirling Prize. Government looks set to water down its contentious planning reforms. New Northern Line stations open at Battersea Power Station and Nine Elms. A leading London architecture studio becomes employee-owned. And a major international competition to renew the Barbican Centre. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the Lundown. My special guest this week is Ellis Woodman. Ellis is director of the Architecture Foundation. Welcome to the show. Hello, Merlin. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Our first story broke this morning. It's the shortlist for the 2021 Sterling Prize, one of the most eagerly anticipated moments of the UK architectural calendar, covered in the AJ and universally across the built environment media. The Sterling Prize, awarded by the RIBA and seen as the UK's most prestigious and coveted architectural achievement, is awarded to the architects of the building that has made the greatest contribution to the evolution of architecture in the past year. Effectively, it's the best building of the year award. Among the six finalists are two London landmarks, 15 Clerkenwell Close by the local architect Amin Taha and Kingston Townhouse by Grafton Architects of Dublin. 15 Clerkenwell Close was at the centre of a long-running planning dispute between Taha's practice and Islington Council, who had extraordinarily tried and in 2019 failed to have the building demolished following a row over its striking facade. Kingston University's bold and very public-facing townhouse meanwhile hosts a library, gallery room, theatre and even dance studios. For last year's Open House Festival, we created a make-at-home model, available in our shop, and a film about Townhouse, which you can find on the Open City YouTube channel. Cambridge Central Mosque by Mark's Barfield Architects, Commodity Grok's Windermere Jetty Museum, Key Worker Housing in Eddington, Cambridge by Stanton Williams, and Nay and William Matthews' Tin Tagel Footbridge complete the shortlist. The winner of this year's Sterling Prize will be announced in October, ending a two-year wait after last year's award was scrapped due to COVID. Previous Sterling Prize winners have included... Roger Stoke Harbour and Partners Maggie Centre in West London, Stanton Williams Sainsbury Laboratory in Cambridge, DRMM's Hastings Pier, Zaha Hadid's Evelyn Grace Academy in Brixton, and the Goldsmith Street Council Housing in Norwich by Mikhail Riches with Cathy Hawley. 
Full coverage of the shortlist can be found on the AJ website, including case studies and a roundup of even more critical comments, with videos of each building coming soon. Ellis, you've been to many of the buildings on this year's shortlist. Could you describe the two London competitors for our listeners? What's special about them? Why do you think they've been included in this year's lineup? And what does it say about the current state of architecture in the capital? Well, I think they're both, in a sense, rather anomalous buildings uh, in the context of London's current development, which is uh, dominated by brick architecture to a great extent. And um, they're both buildings which put a great emphasis on structural expression. Uh, The building in Kingston by Grafton Architects, an Irish firm, is a... A uh, new building for, as Merlin said, for a, a university of King, for the University of Kingston, which is not a university with a very distinguished architectural campus, and this building pretty much single-handedly gives it a much more public expression, and I think is uh, very kind of central to the idea of uh, the university uh, serving this the town around it, not just. Um, its its own students, so it becomes a sort of interface between the university and the wider territory of Kingston. And it's a building which is strikingly open, that uh, of great variety of functions and um, with a, a kind of range of sort of interconnected um, levels where the, the occupation of the building is very visible. Um, well, it has a kind of theatrical quality, I suppose, to, to the way that it's occupied. Um, the building by Amin Taha, as you've said, is a uh, was a source of some controversy with the local authority, predominantly because of its uh, facade, which is in load-bearing stone, and yeah, the the local authority disputed that uh, the, the the building had permission for such a um, such a treatment. Um, so this is um, quite an innovative use of of that material. Um, these when you when you go there, it's kind of really quite strikingly rugged. The large um, chunks of kind of limestone, which are st- um, stacked up in this kind of trabeated structure. Um, and yeah, the, the the stone is used very much as it comes out of the quarry, so there's a certain randomness, which is is initially quite disconcerting, but um, I think has a yeah real uh, powerful individual character within that part of Clerkenwell. Um, but it's yeah, both of them, um, you know, are very resolved works of works of architecture, and I think quite innovative in their uh, what they're trying to do, kind of structurally, um, and at a time when a lot of architecture feels like it's uh, effectively an assembly of components bought out of bought out of a catalogue. Uh, that is very refreshing to see. Just thinking about the other four buildings on the shortlist for the Sterling Prize. So we've got the, the Cambridge Central Mosque, uh, the Windermere Jetty Museum, Key Worker Housing in Cambridge, and also Tintagel Bridge. Um, perhaps you could describe uh, these uh, for us and our listeners, um, but also you know, shed some light on the meaning behind the inclusion of these buildings on the shortlist too. Uh, yeah, the, the Stanton Williams scheme in Cambridge is part of the Northwest Cambridge development, which I, I think is the largest um, development that the University of Cambridge has undertaken in its 800-year history. Uh, so uh, quite a substantial new urban development, um, a building on the same site by Moomer Architects, uh, a community building, um, was on the Sterling Prize shortlist a few years ago. 
and yeah the the it's great to see some social housing for, for in this case for key workers kind of on on the sterling list uh i think there's there could, could have been other projects of that type that could have possibly made it onto the shortlist this year that didn't you know certainly peter barber's work has never been recognized by the the, the sterling shortlist and i think that's long overdue he's going through a particularly prolific period in the, of his practice in london at the moment and um, I would have personally liked to have seen some of those, those projects on there. Um, what else have we got? We've got the the bridge by Ney and oh, William Matthews on um, is on there. William was uh, previously um, director at uh, the Office of Friends of Piano and I think was the project architect on the Shard. And this is a, a footbridge um in a very kind of remote location of cornwall and um, yeah it's a building very much in the engineering tradition of piano's office elsewhere we have the cambridge mosque another building in cambridge um which i think is very important building in terms of the development of that type uh, within the uk so a very, very dramatic structure in glue lamb timber um and conceived as a sort of uh, a mosque serving the both the community in the muslim community in kind of cambridge is quite a suburban location um but also uh, a building of kind of significance to the wider the national muslim community um i think an impressive building in lots of ways i would say it's personally not the most architecturally resolved of the ones on the, the list by my, my i'd suggest um but it is unquestionably a you know a building of some kind of significant social importance. Um, I should say with Windermere Jetty Museum, I have a personal interest in that I was on the jury that selected the architects for the project, and uh, it's a, mm. a, a building on uh, the lake in the lake in the, on a lake in the Lake District, housing a rather extraordinary collection of boats, um, some of which make daily um, excursions out onto the water and um, uh, it's a building extraordinarily beautifully built I think um, kind of a series of very, uh, sheds which are very kind of loose relationship to the um, yeah, loose relationship to one another but quite precise relationship to the, the, the topography of the site and all of them faced um, in copper which is kind of pre-oxidized so it's almost kind of black at present but I think it'll become more kind of richly patinated as, as the building's weather um, so it has a, a very powerful relationship to its location and um, I think a, um, it's it's a scheme which I liked when we gave it we gave the architects the, the commission but um, I think it's developed significantly in the, the course of their um, the course of their project development and um, I think it's a, a really solid um solid scheme I, th I think probably the one that i would choose personally if it was my call as to as to what went one fantastic yeah I, I think um i haven't seen the bookies odds uh but i have a feeling that kingston townhouse is going to win perhaps uh it's not um I, the architects i admire it's not their favorite building of mine um I think they've they've also got. I mean, it's their first project in the UK, and uh, they have two other projects finishing in London this year. 
Um, there's a building for um, Selfridges, kind of on Oxford Street, which is a, a remodelling of an existing building, and a, um, a very dramatic uh, new building for the LSC on Lincoln's and Fields, uh, which I would be very surprised if that wasn't on next year's list. Um, so I think of the two, I would um, probably choose the LSE building over, over the Kingston one. Fantastic. And 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 who do you think might win? Um, obviously, I know you want the Jetty Museum to win, but is there a... If I was placing money, I think I might go for the Jetty Museum. On the, I haven't seen all the projects on the list, but I think that one is an incredibly crafted uh, work of architecture and... Um, um, I, th- I think it, it'll be a very popular building for you know people people who visit it are, are immediately very smitten. You are listening to the Lundown, a weekly news show brought to you by Open City. We rely on support from people like you to make this show. So if you like the Lundown and want to support our work, please share the link, leave us a review on iTunes, and consider becoming an Open City friend. The Lundown is supported by Adobe, makers of software including Photoshop, InDesign and Audition, the programme we use to edit this show. Go to open-city.org.uk forward slash Adobe to sign up for a special discounted subscription to the Adobe Creative Suite for as little as £9.99 a month and Adobe will donate to Open City for everyone who signs up. Our second story this week was covered in the AJ and the Sunday Times. It's all to do with rumours the government could soon be watering down its proposed planning reforms in a bid to stave off a rebellion from its own MPs. Last year, ministers announced they were tearing up the existing system and replacing it with one based on local design codes and automatic consent in areas earmarked for development. Their aim was to speed up the planning system in order to meet the government's target of 300,000 new homes a year. However, the proposed zonal system, as well as mandatory house-building targets, could now be abandoned. The expected U-turn follows protests from Conservative MPs who branded the planning bill a developer's charter. The plan changes were even thought to have played a part in the party's shock by-election defeat in June, which we covered here on Lundown. Criticism has not been limited to Conservatives and their supporters. The RIBA has also condemned the reform as shameful and counterproductive, while the Town and Country Planning Association accused the government of missing the chance to use planning to improve health and well-being. So, Ellis, why is this such a big deal that the government is seemingly backtracking on these reforms that have caused such a stir in the government and beyond? Uh, will architects and architecture benefit as a result of this U-turn, or could it suffer from less freedom? I very much welcome uh, any U-turn of this this policy. Um, I think the UK is a very decrepit uh, planning culture, um, you know, really, which we can trace back to the uh, kind of early 1980s, when the Thatcher government kind of set about dismantling the whole program of postal reconstruction, and uh, yeah, since then we've sort of seems to have lost the ability to plan. Uh, we have a kind of culture of development control rather than planning. We planners don't make propositions about how the world should be to which the private sector can respond and you know uh, only you know we're just beginning to see local authorities reclaim their role as kind of house builders which is yeah so it's something that you know it was very kind of central to their activities up 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 until the, the late 70s 
I think there's there's this strange kind of uh, you know false dichotomy that that that's kind of been set up in the UK. This idea that planning is somehow um, uh, you know hostile to development, but you know I, I think all you know developers would welcome a culture which was uh, more proactive about planning because what planning brings is certainty, and you know the the, the at present. Any developer will tell you that you know the the challenges of getting permission to build things in the UK uh, make the, that that task just uh, make the task of kind of realizing anything incredibly slow, painful, convoluted. And um, if there's kind of certainty, then you know the 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 value of land kind of adjusts in in order to kind of accommodate that new reality. So. I I think you know one just needs to look at the planning cultures of Belgium or Switzerland or Germany or uh, you know to to realize that there are other ways of doing things which produce better results than we do in the UK. Yeah, it's certainly anecdotally um in Singapore for example, which obviously is a small city state, but they just have a big map of the entire city showing exactly what you can build pretty much on every little parcel of land. Um, and it's decided if you own that bit of land, that's the most you can build or whatever, you know, uh, it's very different from the way it works here um, and very different from what a zonal system would have been, which was effectively um, yeah, setting a kind of parameters of what the external appearance of the building would have looked like and then just saying, go for it. it it's it's straightforward to say, well, ha- let's have some more housing, but housing rec- also requires schools and hospitals and other infrastructure, you know, transport infrastructure to serve it. And all of that, 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 those sorts of judgments, they need planning. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not it, just to, to say that we're establishing a sort of regulatory Nevada and let, let's hope for the best is, um, yeah, that's a pretty kind of depressing way to start um, developing cities. Um, and I'm just thinking, what might be the consequence of this re- reform U-tone for those who are seeking housing and the many homeless people or those in overcrowded accommodation? You know, one of the supposed aims of these planning reforms was to build 300,000 new homes a year. Um, there's even rumours now that target could also be scrapped. Um, what is it about the sensitive balance of political power in the UK? You know, many voters fiercely opposed to new homes, placing extra pressure on quite frankly, thinly stretched infrastructure in their local area. What's it about this settlement that always seems to result in a poor outcome for those in housing need? You know, one of the most useful contributions to this conversation I've heard recently is, uh, you know, Russell Curtis's research on, um, you know, the, 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 the areas of the, the you know, golf courses that are kind of, um, you know, the, the amount of housing need that could be accommodated there. You know, one looks at the green belt and a lot of it's not very green, frankly, of course, there are kind of there are large swathes of it that need protecting, but there's also um, significant parts of of that territory that that uh, would very well lend themselves to kind of new development. Our next story has been covered in the Telegraph, My London, and across London's local news networks. It's all to do with a £750 million underground extension, which is due to open in the coming days. It means Battersea Power Station and Nine Elms will appear as two new stops on the Northern Line as of Monday the 20th of September. The project, largely paid for by a levy on local development, has been six years in the making and will be the first major London underground extension this century. The opening of the two new stations, however, comes as the Daily Telegraph published an article scrutinising the enormous Nine Elms regeneration zone. 
questioning the success of the area, which is dominated by speculative luxury housing and is sometimes dubbed Dubai on Thames. Despite the landmark Battersea Power Station, restored by Wilkinson Aaron Purcell, which is set to house Apple's UK headquarters, uh, and the state-of-the-art US Embassy, designed by US eco-architect Kieran Timberlake, scepticism within the real estate industry has plagued the luxurious residential and entertainment district. Indeed, a quick glance at online sales portal Rightmove this week shows a market saturated with luxury homes, including a six-bedroom, £16 million penthouse on the eastern flank of Battersea Power Station and the entire 35th floor of St George Tower, going for £15 million. That's quite an exceptional marketplace, even by global standards. Furthermore, these properties are way beyond the purchasing power of ordinary Londoners, let alone even bankers, doctors and lawyers, unless they hold enormous personal wealth. According to The Telegraph, question marks now hover over whether the entire Nine Elms development will ever be fully finished, as hoarding rose and disputes flare in the numerous construction sites and empty luxury apartments. In particular, the article claims RNF Properties, a key player behind several prominent Nine Elms skyscrapers, is being doubted over its commitment to completing its projects, as it faces increasing pressure over its debt level from the Chinese government, uh, from whom some of its loans stem. This is something RNF strongly refutes though. Nine Elms was marketed to investors and potential residents as the ultimate 15-minute city, full of amenities and entertainment and, with the introduction of the Northern Line extension, only a short trip from the city and West End. However, with fears large swathes of development space could fail to materialise as planned, concerns remain over the reality of making these disparate new towers into a coherent community. Ellis, Perhaps you could tell our listeners a bit about Nine Elms, its history, how it used to look, uh, the original intentions behind the transformation, and what the regeneration zone is shaping up to be right now. Well, it's a, it's been a long problem site um, in in London's history. You know, it's, it's one of the, the post-war period of the, the port industries kind of moving downriver, um, large swathe of the the. The Thames sort of became initially vacant and then sort of available for redevelopment. And although you would think that this kind of really prime site on the opposite side of the Thames from Pimlico would have been developed many years ago, the challenge particularly of restoring the power station and the limited transport connections are really the two issues which um, kind of caused caused it problems for many years. The decision to extend the northern line was the thing which has um, kind of facilitated uh, the, that, the development ultimately. And the fact that there isn't any, any great quantity of social housing on the site is in large part because of the, the levies that were placed on the developer to contribute to, to, to towards the, the extension of the, the, the tube line. Um, so it's it's a bit of a, um, a disappointing area to put it mildly. I mean I go and do my shopping there but it doesn't have much much else to recommend it. Um, and yes yeah, certainly some of the ugliest buildings in London are to be found in the immediate vicinity. Well, it's certainly interesting to think back say 10 years ago before development really flew off the ground there and um 
yeah, it, it was it was mostly just warehouses. Uh, there was a really big road. Uh, there really was nothing going on. Obviously, the massive Battersea Power Station, which nobody knew if it would ever uh, get get re restored or turned into anything of interest. Um, but then um, there was like a big talk about how this industrial land needed to be you know, turned over to build the sort of housing London needs. You know, London's a growing city, and we need more homes for all the key workers and so on and so forth. Um, and there was also a kind of parallel discussion about the architecture and the quality of the architects involved in this and that that would somehow kind of hold it all together. And that's an interesting thing just to think about that architecture because some really, really big names have been involved in designing buildings there. So we've got like Skid Skidmore Owens Merrill, uh, Con Penderson Fox, Roger Stoke Harbour and Partners, Field and Clegg Bradley Studios, the right Morgan Marsh Moore, um, <laughs> sorry, DRMM, uh, Arab Associates, HAL Architects, to name just a few. Um, yeah. Yet, despite this quality architecture, um, you know, there has sort of been some controversy around it over the years. Um, I'd be interesting to know what's your opinion of the architecture itself behind the developments which should be going on here. And also, you know, tell us a bit about what you think specifically about the really big landmark ones like the US Embassy and the Battersea Power Station. You can't have good architecture without good planning. You know, you look at King's Cross Central, which is, um, you know, an area of a you know comparable size where it's you know a major bit of london which has you know the buildings of variable quality but there's an urban idea um you know that there's a sort of uh, an attitude about kind of streets and how the buildings should meet 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 streets and um and about the retention of, of existing um buildings within the side and about um links to beyond beyond the beyond the site and about having a mix of uses not you know of, of housing both for rich people and people who aren't rich for having offices having uh you know and facilities like the, the central st martins so it you know it has a sort of um there, there are there are qualities that yeah that kind of collectively contribute to something that feels urban feels like somewhere you might want to be and um and yeah the architects can kind of you know respond to that that wider larger structure um it's just simply not in place in 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 uh in, in voxel you know that some of the architects are better than others some of the buildings are better than others but you know collectively it, it doesn't add up to anything that anything you want to go near our fourth story appeared in the AJ this week. It's all to do with Hawkins Brown handing over ownership to its employees. The 33-year-old company, also a contender for the AJ100 Practice of the Year Award, joins a growing number of architectural practices to switch to an employee ownership model. Earlier in the year, Edinburgh's Alan Murray Architects made a similar move, as did heritage specialist Purcell, HLM and its sister company Llewellyn Davis. According to the firm, the decision to make the move to an employee ownership trust was taken to provide the best option for the sustainable future growth of the practice. The trust holds 100% of the shares on behalf of all 260 Hawkins Brown employees. Uh, a new practice governance structure has been brought in with the creation of a board of trustees chaired by Larissa Joy, previously a non-executive director of London and Quadrant, the housing association, and an elected employee council to work alongside its operations board. 
At the same time, there have been 11 new promotions to partner level held as the new generation of the practice's leadership, bringing the total number at Hawkins Brown to 32. So Ellis, what's this all about? Hawkins Brown, they're an architect which has done a lot of major buildings in London. Uh, it's currently working on eight new Thameside parks for the Tideway Tunnel project. Um, it's the latest firm to hand over ownership to its employees. Uh, what does this mean for the studio and the people who work there? And uh, might it make some change in the way large practices like this operate? Well, I, I don't think it's because they've suddenly become communists. Um, you know, I think you know, all the practices you're describing are of a certain generation where the, uh, the partners are um, thinking about retirement in a kind of more active way. And um, so the question becomes, you know, what's going happen to happen to the firm? And uh, that's always a tricky one. So I think having a sort of legacy strategy in place is uh, quite, quite rather critical to, to allowing the original directors to, um, to, to make that move. Um, of course, the, one wonders, you know, can the quality of the practice be sustained, you know, with, um, with you know, different people at the helm? Our final story this week has been covered in the AJ and across the built environment media. It's all to do with the Barbican Centre's newly launched international competition for a major renovation. The City of London Corporation has fired the starting gun on an international contest for a major £50 to £150 million renewal of the Grade 2 listed Barbican Centre. The local authority is inviting, quote, multidisciplinary teams who have the skills, experience and ambition to compete for the high profile commission to transform the brutalist style arts centre to, quote, meet the needs of 21st century artists, audiences and communities. The two stage competition comes seven months after the corporation killed off plans to create the Centre for Music, a £288 million acoustically advanced concert hall designed by Dilla Scafidio and Renfro blaming current unprecedented circumstances for thwarting fundraising for the project. Completed in 1982 and designed by Chamberlain, Powell and Bonn, the Barbican Centre was the centrepiece of the city's large-scale post-war reconstruction vision, which imagined a new world of skywalks separating pedestrians from motor traffic. In recent decades, the iconic cultural complex has received a series of upgrades by the likes of AHMM and Rough Architects. The latest project will cover all aspects of the building, from upgrading venues and transforming underused areas into new flexible spaces, to improving the welcome, navigating and wayfinding, while also looking at ways to embed digital technology and to upgrade environmental performance in line with the corporation's aim to be carbon neutral by 2027. Five finalists will be invited to develop proposals and the overall winner will draw up a range of options for the project that could be deliverable at different budget levels. So Ellis, what is the significance of this new competi competition launching for one of London's most architecturally significant cultural venues? I'm, I'm delighted that the music centre is not happening, uh, which I always thought was a, a appalling idea in the first place. And... Um, I mean, a appalling idea to put it there to start with, that, you know, if you're going to build a new concert hall, you're going to build it next to the Barbican. I mean, why not build it in, you know, a part of London that you're going to end up regenerating kind of um, by, by by introducing a new pub, major new public building, you know, in the way that Tate Modern completely transformed a part of South London. Um, and the competition for the music centre was very disappointing because the shortlist 
pretty much everyone was over 70 and you could sort of it just smelt of uh, putting together a list of people who could unlock the purses of american benefactors potentially you know that that they, they were all the you kind know, of star names who of you know generally architects were sort of whose best work was behind them so very cheerful about that not happening um and i very much hope that the shortlist that they come up with for the the barbican redevelopment is a more creative one and i mean it it sounds reading between the lines as if actually the you know the brief isn't too much about addressing the, the you know the theater or the the concert hall you know which have you know spaces which have uh, certainly the concert hall Caruso Sinjin kind of um did work to not so very long ago and uh, but i think there is this other task about i mean there's a lot of space at the barbican that's sort of unused you know these vast quantities of car parking space not least and kind of you know spaces around the periphery of the site which will um you know begin to be kind of um yeah be, be, be open for kind of new uses as things like you know beach street um uh, the underpass kind of gets close to traffic um i mean i'd say that i think the most problematic space for me part of, of in the building is probably the space that's now used as the art gallery but was never really conceived as an art gallery um you know all of that's you know been you know is effectively a sort of black box environment of, of quite a restrictive kind for displaying art because it's has a very kind of cellular configuration so the kind of shows you you put on um i think i think they, they do very well in terms of introducing inviting architects to to try and reimagine that space for each show but it is very deterministic about the 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 kind of shows you make and you know there's not a ready availability of natural light which you you might certainly want for for for, for some exhibitions so i think for, for me the thing they're they're, you know, they're they're really lacking is a um a more purpose-built gallery space and you know maybe that's something you can accommodate on the Museum of London site now that the horrible Dillis Gifidio thing's not happening. Well, it's very interesting because the article about this competition has done extraordinarily well on the on the AJ website with lots of clicks and social media impressions and so on. And um, obviously this competition is potentially going to be you know, one of the most uh, exciting ones or certainly have a lot of applications in, in recent times. Um, not least because it's right in the centre, well, next to Clerkenwell, uh, where a lot of architects are based. So they spend time there. Um, what is it about the Barbican Centre and the wider Barbican estate that's just so captivating for architects and non-architects alike, um, making it such an important site? Well, I, I guess of you know of the major housing schemes of the of the post-war era, it's obviously a bit of an anomalous one in that you know it's kind of it's, it's sort of that social housing. It's sort of built for a kind of middle-class you know population. It and because it's built by the city of london it's um fantastically well maintained and um yeah it's a, it's a sort of remains a sort of dream of what post war architecture um could be and um i mean i'd have to say yeah i think the personally i think that the housing is probably more successful than the art center component i mean it's it's never going to I, I would be very surprised if this was a competition which was going to allow an architect um 
a lot of scope for you know flamboyant formal expression it's going to be um a commission involving sort of fine surgery to to this 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 listed building and yeah it's more of a, a conservation project than it is it is about kind of radically transforming the identity of that that building fantastic ellis it's been an immense pleasure having you on the London this week um i hope you can join us again in the future sometime soon I'm thinking, where can our listeners um, hear a bit more about what you're doing, what you're writing? I know you've just published a new book. Um, perhaps you could tell us about a bit about that and how we can keep up to speed on all the things you're doing. The Architects Foundation's just brought out New Architects 4, which is a... Um, we, every five years, we kind of uh, bring out a, a guide to the best new practices in the country. And uh, so this has got 109 firms, kind of, yeah, all kind of recently set up in the UK. And, and your socials, where can people follow you? Oh, um, yes, we are on Instagram, uh, Architecture Foundation. Uh, but you can have a look at our YouTube channel because we, so, yeah, we, we were very active online over the last 18 months and there's, there's about 400 events there which are all free to access. Fantastic. Well, once again, thank you for coming on the show this week and look forward to speaking again with you soon. Thanks, Merlin. Listening to the Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to the Architects Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at, at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.